So every generation has their epic movies. My generation, I'm just going to give away my age for you. Uh, my generation's epic movie was Braveheart. Uh, some of you are in my generation, millennials. Go millennials. Uh, just kidding. Everybody hates millennials. It doesn't matter if you're a Gen Z or a boomer. You just Everybody hates millennials. We own it. It's okay. We, we get it. Uh, but Braveheart uh, is the story of an unassuming Scotsman, William Wallace, uh, who became a great warrior, who led a group of rebel Scots in rebellion against oppression against uh, the Brits, the English. And just before the final battle scene in this movie, William Wallace, he's war painted up, he's on a horse, he's riding back and forth, he gives this incredible, incredible speech. Uh, it's not long, but it's, it's really powerful. It's like, you just, I want to tear up even just thinking about it. <laughs> it was a great movie. Uh, he says this, fight and you may die. Run and you'll live at least a while. And then he finishes with the famous statement, they may take our lives, but they can never take our freedom. Now, Jesus ends his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, in much the same way. He doesn't don war paint or make an epic speech. He's just got a crowd of people sitting at his feet and he's teaching them Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. But what he does, akin to William Wallace, is he draws a line in the sand, so to speak. Basically, Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of God is. Are you in? He's been talking about the kingdom of God for three chapters, the, the way of true blessing, right? Remember Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. Uh, he's been talking about how they're countercultural and they're counterintuitive to the wisdom and the ways of our world. And then he talked in chapters, the end of chapter 5 and then through chapter 6 into chapter 7, the way of true righteousness, uh, which is the only way into the kingdom of God. To get in and to exist in the kingdom of God, you must have true righteousness, a righteousness that's greater than even the most religious people, the people who wrote the book on righteousness. You've got to have a better righteousness than them. But the good news was that it's a righteousness that's not achieved, but rather it's one that's received. It's one that Jesus gives us from the outside in and then transforms us from the inside out. And so he's, all of this is leading his listeners to a critical point of decision. The same point of decision, by the way, that every person who comes into an introduction to Jesus Christ must make. The moment you hear about Jesus, the moment you comprehend who he is and what the Bible describes he's done for us, it mandates a decision. There is no neutral ground when it comes to Jesus and the kingdom of God. See, William Wallace gave his troops two options, fight or run. Fight and you may die. Run and you'll live for a while. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13, gives us our two options for the kingdom of God, which he describes in three different metaphors. So we're going to look today at three metaphors about how Jesus describes, where do we go from here? The end of the Sermon on the Mount. So look with me, starting in verse 13, as we see the first metaphor, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. The two gates and the two roads. 
Verse 13 says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. Enter, Jesus says, as he moves into the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, he gives an imperative verb, a verb that demands action, uh, that says a decision has to be made. Are you in or are you out? In other words, he's actually saying, are you in the kingdom or are you not? Are you in another kingdom? Are you in God's kingdom or are you in another kingdom? Because there really is no out. There is no cop out. You're in one or you're in the other. And so he says, enter the gate. Now, this verb is not only active, it's not only a command like an imperative, it's actually plural, meaning in good old East Texas terms, Jesus is saying to the hillside, hey, all y'all, enter the kingdom of God. Enter all y'all, everyone, you all have the opportunity to make this decision. The kingdom of God is for you. And the time is now. Now, when we think about gates in relationship to Jesus in heaven, most of us probably think about the pearly gates, right? What happens way off in the distant future when I die, that will I stand before an angel and maybe a book and hope that maybe the gate will be opened to me. And that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying that this is a now gate, not a future gate. Uh, that every person, the moment they hear about Jesus, their very next step will either be through the gate of faith or the gate of rejection. There's no neutral ground. There's no middle place. There's no cop out here. Jesus is saying to you, you are invited. The kingdom of God is for you. Now, enter. Did anyone else have to memorize uh, the Robert Frost poem in like middle school or junior high? Two roads diverged in a yellow wood and I, I took the one less traveled by. Uh, at one point, I think I knew more of that, but that's the only part I can remember. But this is what I picture uh, when Jesus says, enter this gate, there is another gate that's wide and a road that's broad. It's the one that leads to destruction. But this gate is narrow and the road is small and difficult. That leads to life. Jesus is describing this kingdom of God as entering a narrow gate, a difficult road. It's the one that most people won't choose. It's the one that doesn't make the most sense to us when we come to the fork in the road. But here's what Jesus is saying, not that it's just a narrow gate and a difficult road, because all of this sermon is cohesive. And Matthew, who's compiled all of this information from Jesus, has organized it in a way that's really beautiful and it all fits together. Jesus is actually hearkening back to Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, when he says the road is difficult. It's a word difficult. It implies that there will be not just hard things, but there will actually be opposition. There will actually be persecution. Remember what Matthew 5 says in verse 10 through 12, that blessed are the persecuted, those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is completing the thought 
that he began with the Beatitudes here at the conclusion of the sermon, that when you enter the kingdom of God, it's not just hard, it's actually there will be opposition. There will be difficulty, maybe even persecution, but it is the path to life, to wholeness, to goodness, to true blessing. He's calling us back to this reality that the path of least resistance may appear like the best way to the world, but this is an upside down kingdom. That what looks good to the world won't always make sense in our eternal reality, the kingdom of God. The path of least resistance, it's the way of the world, right? It ultimately, though, Jesus says, leads to destruction, not blessing. I was thinking about this this week, and I remembered seeing on the news a couple years ago uh, an interesting thing that's happening in Europe and even Canada, and I think some parts of the United States are trying to play with it right now. It's uh, called a green bridge. It's a wildlife crossing over major highways. Have you guys seen this? Uh, I mean, some of them are beautiful. Uh, They take a bridge that would look like you'd put pavement on it and and lanes except they make it like grass and trees and shrubbery and and uh, all of this is designed to help wildlife safely cross highways uh and i think i think that's great and i'm sure it helps some animals who come across that but for the most part wildlife don't have the critical thinking ability to say i will take the long way around to avoid danger right Like when you see the sign on the road that has a deer on it jumping, that's not for the deer, right? They're not looking at it going, oh yeah, well, I should go this other way, right? Maybe you've actually been driving down a road in East Texas and you've seen a herd of deer kind of lurking at the edge of the tree line or coming out of the tree line. And what's your reaction? It needs to be foot on the brake, right? (laughs) Because probably what's going to happen is one or all of those deer are jumping out in the middle of the road because there's not a deer in the background uh, you know, going like, hey guys, uh, I'm not sure this is a great idea. Like that looks like an F-250. I think it sounds like a diesel. Is that a brush guard on the front? Uh, I'm not sure. This is, that's not what they're doing, right? They're coming out and, and that deer in the back is just kind of moseying along going, the food's over there. This is the way we're going. Okay, great. Cool. And then splat. And that's it. Well, Jesus is saying this. Humans you do have the capacity to make this decision. And despite the visible carnage on the broad road with the wide gate, and in fact, if you want some examples of visible carnage on the road that leads to destruction, go back and read Matthew chapter five again, right? This is all interconnected. We see these uh, examples of what life, the way the world chooses to do, happens, how it happens, and what happens to us. We see broken relationships. We see hate. We see divorce. We see deception among people who love one another or say they do. I mean, this is like just human brokenness described in Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus is saying, look at the carnage on the wide road, the easy way, yet people still continue to choose it, for the most part, because it's what comes most natural to our sinful selves. It looks like the path of least resistance. I'll stay on that road. In fact, that's where I see most people going. So it must be right until splat. But there's a different way, right? Jesus says there's a way which is unnatural to the world. There's a way 
to true fulfillment, a, a way to avoid the splat, right? A way to where we can have wholeness in our lives and the life to come. And that is by entering the narrow gate, the difficult road that leads to life. It's by turning our whole selves over to Jesus through faith and obedience. This is what the first metaphor is saying. You have two ways that you can live. You can fight or you can run. Except Jesus says, you can take the easy way, which leads to destruction, or you can take my way, which is difficult, but it's best. And it leads to life, to fullness, to flourishing. Which will it be? Well, the next metaphor describes what happens when we don't turn our whole selves over to Jesus as he asks. It's the metaphor of two fruits. So look with me in verse 15 of Matthew chapter 7 as we read this metaphor. Now just note that there's two things happening here and the fruit metaphor is sandwiched between some talk about false prophets, okay? So track with me here starting in verse 15. Jesus says, be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so you'll recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? And then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Now, we've got this metaphor of fruit. Remember, Jesus is talking about two ways to live in the kingdom or in, in God's kingdom or in the kingdom of this world, which leads to destruction or the one which leads to life, right? Two ways. Well, the picture of fruit, like we said, sandwiched between a warning about false prophets. Now, false prophets are just people who are masquerading as godly on the outside, but unchanged on the inside. Now, what does this matter? Well, for one, Jesus has been talking about this for two and a half chapters so far. If you've been in any of the messages from this whole Sermon on the Mount series, you know that he's talking about our inner selves matching our outer selves. And so a warning against false prophets is obviously like it's a way that you see what's ha what he's describing playing out in the world, that there are these people who want to look good on the outside, but on the inside, nothing has ever happened spiritually. They want to appear religious maybe, but on the inside, it's still brokenness and hurt and pain and destruction and sin. So why does this matter for the kingdom of God? This is a warning that outward demonstrations of faith without an inwardly changed heart mean nothing to Jesus, but instead are only self-serving and self-justifying. So this person is unwilling to turn themselves over to Jesus fully. 
that's what we talked about with the gates, right? If, to go through the narrow gate on down the difficult road is, is to give your whole self to Jesus, which is where we find the fullness of life that he offers. Well, this false prophet is a person who's unwilling to turn their whole self over to Jesus. They will only give part. And usually it's the part that looks good to other people. Now, this is an echo of chapter six, where Jesus talks about the hypocrites who wore the mask of spiritual activity only to be applauded by men. And that's all the applause they got. So in other words, what's happening is Jesus is saying, giving your outward self to him without giving your inner self to him is the same as rejecting him completely. Because as we've seen and said, Jesus wants to give us his righteousness. And that's a righteousness that comes from the outside where? In to then transform us from the inside out. So rejecting in this way ends in rejection by Jesus. This is what's interesting. If we don't turn our whole selves over to Jesus and end up like these false prophets, ultimately we will be rejected by Jesus. This is a hard truth. This is a hard teaching, but it must be taught. So look closely at verse 21 and 23. We'll put them back up on the screen for you so that you can read them while I kind of talk about them. Jesus describes these false prophets who he originally started out with saying they are wolves in sheep's clothing, right? And then he gives this metaphor of the fruit that you can't have a good tree produce bad fruit and a bad tree produce good fruit, but they will be known by their fruit. He's saying to us, you too will be known by your fruit. But look what happens here. In verse 21 through 23, there obviously are people who are doing spiritual things on the outside, yet when they come before God face to face, Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. There's a lot of faithful Christians who are terrified by these verses. And as a Christian, you may even be asking yourself, what do I do with this? How do I know that when I get face to face with Jesus, that I'm not surprised to end up on the wrong side of things. Because, I mean, I'm trying hard. Like, I want to do well. I, I want my faith to live out my faith, but I know I'm not always perfect. So could it be me that stands before Jesus one day and Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you? That's how most people think about it. But let me lead you to read this in a different way. Nothing in these verses indicates that these false prophets were surprised in any way by Jesus' rejection of them. In fact, what we see is that as they stand before Jesus, Jesus reveals their true motives. You can imagine Jesus saying in this example to false prophets, Oh, I've seen what you did on the outside, but I also am looking at the inside. And as he reveals their true motives, exposing that they have lived lives doing their own will rather than the will of God, what's their response? Humility? Surprise? No. Their response is pride. They dig their heels in. Lord, Lord, 
didn't you see what we did in your name? Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we do miracles? Didn't we cast out demons? They're digging their heels in even more to justify themselves by their actions alone. And it backfires. Jesus says that will not hold water in the kingdom of God. True righteousness, the righteousness required for the kingdom of God, as we've seen throughout this sermon, is not about what you can do. Even if it's something done for him, even if it's something done in his name, it's not about what you can do. It is about what Jesus can do in and through you. The way of being in the kingdom of God is not to say, look what I've done, which is what the false prophets do when they stand before God here. That is not the way of being in the kingdom of God. The way of being in the kingdom of God is to say, look what Jesus has done. And that is a completely different picture than what Jesus shows us here. So faithful Christian who wants to honor God, who who wants to live your life for him, you know your faith is in Jesus. You've received his righteousness and now you're just trying to live it out. Listen, you will never come up short before Jesus because God has provided for your salvation completely, fully, 100% paid for. The work of Jesus on the cross lacked nothing. So when you stand before God, if your faith is in Jesus, your inner reality has already been transformed. You are working as God works with you by his Holy Spirit to transform your lives outwardly to look more like Jesus, but you can rest assured you are saved. You are redeemed. You are taken care of. God, when you come face to face with him, will not meet you with a barrage of questions that you have to answer correctly. He will meet you with a loving embrace and a well done, good and faithful servant. So you ought not fret. But those of us who don't know Jesus ought to take note of the invitation of Jesus and recognize that a life of good works, even done for good reasons, without giving our whole selves over to Jesus in faith is not a life that will be welcome in the kingdom of God. We must trust Jesus and receive his righteousness from the outside in and transform us from the inside out. So bearing good fruit is not just about being a good person. It's about your source. It's about your faith in Christ. So if you're here today and you know your inner life doesn't match your outer life or your outer life doesn't match your inner life, then maybe you're coming to church just to appear like a good person. Maybe you have been coming week after week and you've got this facade on the outside, but you know on the inside that it's broken and rotten and sinful Jesus wants to make that right and redeem your life. In fact, one of the Psalms I was reading this morning says the phrase, plentiful redemption 
that God has steadfast love for you and his redemption is plentiful, meaning it's not going to run out. I started getting worried a minute ago when we were taking the Lord's Supper together because we had just enough elements prepared for everybody. And I was looking up here going, are we going to make it? When it comes to your redemption, nobody's asking that question. God has given plentiful redemption as a gift of his grace. That's not even in my notes, so there you go. The final metaphor drives this point home. It's the metaphor of the two builders. So look at me, verse 24. Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it did not collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. Now, interesting metaphor. I want to point out to you that a lot of times people focus on the wise and the foolish man, and they act as if this metaphor is about two people. But can I tell you, this metaphor is about everyone. Because in verse 24, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise or a foolish man. So this metaphor, while it's about two men, is for all of us. We all have to reckon with this reality that, as Jesus puts this in no uncertain terms, everyone will build a house. Everyone will face the storm. The difference comes to what foundation you built your house on. Now, in the Bible, a storm is either a literal storm or it's a figurative storm that refers to judgment, symbolically. Think Noah's Ark, right? Back in the Genesis, which we'll study in just a few weeks together as we launch into our sermon series on Genesis. Uh, Noah constructs this ark to save his family and animals from God's judgment in the form of a flood, right? The waters rise. So, if this is reality... What God is saying, Jesus is saying here, is that when God's judgment comes, your foundation will be exposed. The hidden reality of your life will be revealed. Do you see this theme building as Jesus concludes his sermon? It's not just about what it looks like on the outside. It's about really what it's built of on the inside. Who you trust in? What do you trust in? What do you stand on? Yourself or Jesus? That's the question. He is the only sure foundation that can withstand the righteous judgment of God. His Jewish audience would have expected a rabbi to say something like, build your life on the law and the prophets. Build your life on the rules. Go back to the Old Testament and make sure you're following them. Every I is dotted and T is crossed in your life, right? Make sure you get it right. But Jesus says, build your life on me. Now, this would have been crazy to his audience. If you go all the way back to chapter 5, verse 17, he had already rocked their world by saying that he had come not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill the law and the prophets, which is where we get this idea that Jesus has a righteousness in and of himself that's greater than any righteousness a human can achieve and that he wants to give it to people. 
who respond to him in faith. So Jesus is both the way to God's kingdom and the king of God's kingdom. He's in charge of it all. And his instruction for building a sure foundation in verse 24, did you see it? Hearing and doing what he says. So again, this is re- theme has been repeated by Jesus over and over. What you take in from Jesus then is reflected out in how you live. It's your inner life and your outer life. Do they match? Are you striving for righteousness on your own? Are you faking it till you make it? That is foolishness, Jesus says, and you're not going to make it. But he offers his righteousness in exchange for our unrighteousness to make us right before God as a free gift, that if we would receive by faith his righteousness that comes from the outside in to transform us from the inside out, that then we will experience the good life in the kingdom of God under his rule and reign as partners with him in his kingdom work. This is where Jesus wants to lead you today. There's two ways to live, a narrow gate or a broad gate, good fruit, bad fruit wisdom and foundation on Jesus alone or foolishness and then he concludes Matthew tells us when Jesus in verse 28 had finished saying these things the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority not like their scribes so the crowd was astonished that doesn't mean they made the right choice Later in Matthew, the same word would be used to describe a crowd who subsequently walked away from Jesus, walking away from him in disbelief. But at the very least, the crowd recognized Jesus' authority compared to the scribes, which is to say uh, the scribes as a group of Pharisees who kind of ended up, by the way, being the same group of Pharisees who ended up kind of weaseling their way into getting Jesus falsely accused and tried for crimes he didn't commit, ultimately leading to his death, further proves the upside-down nature of God's kingdom, that God would use the death of Jesus to offer true and eternal life to all who would choose to give their whole selves to Jesus in faith and obedience. And verse 29 confirms what this entire sermon has been doing. Jesus offers a better life, far better than any religion can offer. Jesus offers a better life, far better than anyone or anything in this world can offer, far better than you can build for yourself. That's what Jesus is offering. The predominant message today is that if there are 8 billion people in the world, there are 8 billion different ways to live, but Jesus is saying there are only two. And only one of those is the way to true life, both now and for eternity. Following Jesus is a decision of faith that costs us our whole selves, but it is the only way that we receive and live a whole life. So what choice will you make? It's a line in the sand. There's two ways which will you choose. Verse 1 in chapter 5, I've referred to this several times in this series, but there's two groups of people that follow Jesus up the hillside. There's his disciples who are committed to him. And then there's just a group of people who sort of 
form a crowd around them to hear what Jesus has to say. The question is, how will you respond? Which group will you be in? Will you be committed to Jesus, your whole self? Or are you content just to be part of the crowd? The call of Jesus is to move from crowd to committed, to be his disciple by faith, to give your whole self to him. I wanna invite Haley back up to lead us in a simple song of response as we close today. And I wanna lead you in a simple prayer and give you two ways to respond. You know what Jesus is calling you to. So those who are already committed to him, walking in faith and obedience, keep choosing to build your life on Jesus. Make sure, like get the level out and get the square out and make sure your foundation is good on Jesus alone. That's the call for those of you who are already committed. Those of you who find yourself just in the crowd today, kind of on the outskirts, the call of Jesus today is to make the choice to follow him, to enter into his kingdom by faith. I wanna give you a simple prayer that you could pray on your own to commit your life to Jesus in faith. And then we'll sing a couple choruses and we'll dismiss. If that's you today, you might pray a prayer, something like this. If you'd all bow your heads and close your eyes, just to shut out distractions. There may be someone around you who needs to make a decision about Jesus today. And if that's you, you might pray something along the lines of this. Lord, I confess I have sinned against you. I have been in the wrong. Please forgive me. And God, I accept what Jesus did on the cross for me to pay for my sin. Now, God, I surrender my whole life to you. Teach me how to follow you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.